week on the program, we heard an interview with the designer Tony Fry. He talked of the need for a kind of green design, a new commitment from designers and industry to produce objects which were ecologically sound and economically realistic. Dr. Nigel Hellyer is also concerned about the relationship between design and industry. And his starting point is what he says are the false promises and expectations of the Industrial Revolution. Hellyer is critical of a world where humans dominate nature and take the products of science and manufacturing for granted. He's probably best known for his public architectural works on this sort of theme. Like the bells he placed in the Olympic Park at the 1988 Seoul Olympics and gallery installations in California, Perth, Melbourne and Sydney. His current show is entitled Mutant Talk Town, The Sweet Warm Breath of Science, and is on at Sydney's Performance Space Gallery. There, Hellyer explores the relationship between culture and nature. Three large sculptural pieces, which he's constructed out of timber, steel, perspex and found objects. The installations also demonstrate Hellyer's preoccupation with sound, built into his sculptures using various mechanical devices. For example, in the ambient noise of the urban environment is the inspiration for the largest work in the exhibition, a metal and plywood saxophone which fills an entire room. When Matthew Leonard caught up with the artist, Nigel Hellyer was lighting a gasoline burner which hangs from the bell of this enormous saxophone. Thank you. 
also an education um, about seven years old, going through a, a kind of design school foundation, which is based on the Bauhaus, through um, sculpture, first degree in Liverpool, and then I did three years research in, at the Royal College of London, which actually was in a sort of experimental studio, which was based on TV, uh, audio, and electronics. So I've had a fairly mixed and, and also a fairly somewhat fairly technical background. I was going to be a scientist at school. I was training to be a neurobiologist. And um, so a lot of my interests lie in areas of physics, science, theory, things like that. And I suppose a lot of imagery I've been using, a lot of construction techniques, really relate quite strongly to relations of industrial revolution and subsequent technical revolutions since then. What is it about the Industrial Revolution particularly that you think is, has become such a rich source of, of material? Well, I, th I think in many ways it's um, left, left to a person to reflect rather than one of a, a kind of bodily response to my, my background. I mean, I grew up in England and that was um, obviously the, the kind of birth of the Industrial Revolution. Also, I suppose the skeleton of the Industrial Revolution still manifests there as more obvious things. Yeah, it's basically my landscape in many ways, going from historical major landscapes, and sort of where that landscape meets, in, as it were, the kind of natural or cultural landscape, which is for me the most interesting thing, that's the big, um, that's the fusion or construction of a culture through the urban mixture of industry, culture, and the biology of the urban. What sort of product does that produce, do you think, this, this composite of scientific and industrial material that they have really enlightenment through the Industrial Revolution solution, uh, notions of utopia, social societies that, that obviously um, not viable either politically or ecologically. And I think some of the exhibits in this show address that notion of the failure of one great scientific answer and the kind of promise of enlightenment. Um, I, I tend to think that the, the real solution lies in a much more contaminated Let's get back to this idea of your interest in sound and 
what sort of process do you go through in, in looking for ways in which you can exploit the sound possibilities of a particular structure, a kinetic, a kinetic structure, and look for ways in which you can you can develop sounds out of that? Okay, well, I, I suppose it breaks down, I think it's about three things. It, it breaks down into the notion of, of the sound of an instrument, so be it, well, be it a giant one, say, in this show, found within an, an architectural, architonic space, the kind of relationships of the things that you're looking at building within an urban space, and then I suppose the last category would be sound on tape or transmission either with radio or um, within speaker systems of, say, an architecture. So they're, they're kind of all mixed together. And um, last year I did a lot of research. I, I made a, a, a long program for the for the listening room on the uh, ABC called Bell Transform. And at that time I did a lot of research and quite a lot of writing around the idea of sound in the sound environment, you know, within the urban situation. And every time I, I went out on recording touring, I found I got these heavy drones accompanying all of these old engines, as you can hear in the background now, planes, ships. And I started writing about, I wrote stories about that urban environment. And I think a lot of the, um, a lot of my interest lies in a fairly research-based, or based on my personal experiences, as I call it, that research, and then looking at structures which sort of represent that, like the saxophone here with its kids, it's not a melodic, musical thing, it's a, it's an urban signal, or white noise generator, it's sort of a flat tone, it's much closer to an engine going, as you can see, say the bell going, you know, producing uh, the eyes of sirens, or has, say, vortex built within them, things like that. Which, which talk about the condition, the, the sonic condition or the lack of it. So I, I see it as a very long-term research project on, on um, my part, and the things I'm going towards now will be loading sounds, either mechanical sounds or, or tape-based sounds, into urban structures, rather like a viral system, attacking, uh, attacking an urban structure, looking at buildings as vascular systems, air conditioning, their telephones, their intercoms, um, proposed uh, such a piece for a destroyer from England where I used the whole ship system for a kind of massive interrelated sound tech. The ship is a, a vascular body, the artwork is a viral attack, as it were, or a viral takeover of the system. So I think that's the way I'm going to try and go in the sort of tape base. The, uh, the other works I'm intending to carry on, probably I'll make a piece with 20 small saxophones and the waterfall piece, and I've got a very big interest in things like drums and bagpipes, but I'm not sure <laughs> what we're going to do with those yet. But I can, I can see a, a large, semi organic bagpipe coming along soon. The drum beat and the chant are a sublimation of the thunderclap and the howling of the storm. This is a husbandry of noise. The erratic and unpredictable bellows of nature chained to time, to rhythm, and meter. A raucous song floating in chaos. The foundry and the smelter are a sublimation of the drumbeat and the chant. The song is now forbidden on the shop floor. In its place, it is silent, totally occupied by the continuous explosion of the furnace and the reports of the transformation as nature is recreated upon demand. Here, concepts are brought to their ultimate conclusion. Noise equals power, and power produces noise. Whisperers could now operate only as a subversion, but here to whisper is to shout above the din, full in the face of a comrade who can no longer hear, for her birdsong is a chant of memory. Mm -hmm. 
most people's expectations of gallery space and exhibition space and stuff is they go there because they feel, in a way, it's an insulated environment and they can leave all of those sorts of ambient sounds behind them and go into some sort of artificial space. Yeah, I think that's a, a part of the legacy of, of art being a, a separate, a, a sort of a higher, if you like, activity and the artist is seen as having to become either a shaman or a provider of luxury objects or certainly not um, certainly not a co-worker or a critic I think but that idea I think has been eroded fairly rapidly by simply by the by the fact that you know our society is in many ways commerce as we quite culture anyway but um, I- if you look at the um, Biennale which is currently showing that it's very very evident that the what is seen to be culture is in fact mass culture and not high culture you know that many of the works using a combination of ready-made um, industrial products and packaging them that that sort of metaphor are the icons of pop culture yeah but you know the icons of pop culture were largely representations of mass culture but you now find that in many of the works they're not representations they are the actual objects of mass culture so uh, it's uh, very, very prominent in that respect. What about working in, in open spaces and in what are traditionally public domains? Uh, tell me, how have, you, how have you approached working in the open air or doing large commissions in, in, in public squares and public spaces? Well, it becomes very complex when you want to work with, with objects which are either interactive or have elements which do things, which move or make sound. And normally you have to go for a much more of a, a passive situation and um, I think my my central approach has always been to think of it instead of making a thing it's been to make a place to make a, a situation event a place if you put it like that and I suppose the best example of that would be uh, the, a very large piece I made for the Korean Olympics in Seoul in 1998 which is um, a site some 22 meters by 22 by about 6.5 high which contained four huge industrial bell crucible projectile objects um, and although they were were passive in the sense they weren't motorized or had sound tracks they they were like classical eastern bells that you could hit from the outside they were some three meters high and weighed 3,000 kilos so they sounded much more like a gasoline tank was being hit or something like that very low frequency industrial sound but I found going back there opening of the games that the actual sculptural site if you want to call it that was being very well used as a picnic place a kind of hanging out place and people were doing their kind of karate kicks on the bells rather making them making them work so i say the central the central attitude is the idea of creating a place rather than an object or a thing so the, the place that has implications for architecture and in, architectural sort of interaction
also uh, an emotional and bodily somatic experience and those things need to be fused if we do basically be able to act as human beings. When you talk about this fusing of art and architecture, for example, is it the architects who are looking to repertoire of, of art in inverted commas for, for greater possibilities or is the pressure coming from the artists who want to be more involved in making more humane and creative and interesting environments? Um, I think the situation in Australia at the moment is really rather a tragedy that we've been very slow to grasp the idea that um, we should be filling our urban spaces and perhaps even some of our more rural spaces with not simply functional architecture um, or even dysfunctional architecture, but that we need a much greater variety of cultural products, cultural forms. And um, one of the typical ways of dealing with this, and it needs to be one that's done pretty artificially, I think a lot of European, Asian and American cities have, um, Seoul in Korea has a 1% for any building that is 11 stories high. So you have cities which are full of not simply sculptures and uh, appendages, such as some of the buildings in the Pudos project, but buildings which are actually have artists working with designers and artworks which are integrated with architecture. And I think that's the only sensible approach, is the application of a artwork to a building when it's finished as a kind of ornamentation into the space as part of fruition, not, not satisfying the artist either at any particular relationship. So I think we need to have a much more systemic approach where we, we team design things, where artists are part of the design process from the start. And at the moment, I think in Australia, we, have, we do have genuine desire from both kind of architects and kind of vandals and artists to engage in that process and simply that with the infrastructure we have is limited to say the very least. Radiophonic SA Bell Transfer, which was broadcast last year on the ABC's Listening Room program. The artist we're talking to has left. Newton Corktown, the sweet small breath of science, is an exhibition aimed at the performance based gallery till Sunday. In his spare time, Nigel Hellier is the head of the sculpture studio at Sydney College of the Arts, but later in the year he's taking up a three month residency with a bathroom fitting factory in North America. And bathroom fittings play a big role in our next story. Art is easy is the slogan for the current Sydney Biennale, approaching a painting by Giuseppe Chiari. And the theme adopted by director René Bloch is that of the ready-made. Ideas first proposed by Marcel Duchamp, Man Ray, and other Dadaists of the 20s. These New York Dadaists made art out of bicycle wheels, urinals, and existing objects. Man Ray, for example, exhibited an iron with a rough of spikes down its surface. And one of Duchamp's ideas was to use a 
Rembrandt and ironing boards. Cine Biennale presents work by more than 160 artists. How they all use the notion of position and critic Julie Ewington and Louise Barry, who is assistant to the Biennale director Rene Bloch, are talking to you in this week's issue. I'm wondering, first of all, have you looked at the Biennale? Well, you wouldn't think so sometimes if you walked into the National Gallery and saw people who weren't using it. 